Hello, it's Friday 14th of October. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowen and I will be rounding up the latest travel news in the region and looking ahead to next week's ITB Asia show in Singapore. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So Hannah's back and a little bit jet-lagged after a roundabout route back home to KL from Switzerland. I'll ask you more about that in a minute, but today we'll be rounding up eight of the top travel talking points from across Southeast Asia in recent days. And as Hannah said, previewing next week's big travel and tourism industry events in Singapore, and we'll both be there. So Hannah, firstly, how was Switzerland? Where were you based and what were you doing? <laughs> great question. Um, yeah, so Switzerland was, it was great, um, expensive as you might imagine, how much for a can of Coke? Um, but it was wonderful. So I was in Lugano. So that's right by the border with Italy, the Italian speaking part of Switzerland. And it did feel like, you know, it's my first time to Switzerland. Um, and it did feel like a mini Italy, a very, very expensive Italy, um, but a mini Italy um, nevertheless. So I was attending the Adventure Travel World Summit there. It was amazing, you know, 800 people, all in the same room, all from the travel trade. Uh, there was, you know, such an energy. Um, and it's made me feel really excited looking forward to ITB Asia next week as well and seeing more old faces and, and new ones too. Very nice. Lugano, that's a beautiful place. Mm. So uh, you had a little bit of a problem getting home. You had quite a long trip. <laughs> you, you've traveled through several airports. Tell us a bit more uh, about that. Yeah, so my, my, uh, my journey's got a little bit uh, disrupted, my plans at the end of it. Um, and I ended up uh, going to stay with my parents who live in France. And so um, I then had to uh, take a five-hour train journey from uh, their place up to Paris, stay the night, and then the next morning flew from Paris, Charles de Gaulle, to Zurich, Zurich to Singapore, and finally Singapore home. And uh, when I got to KLIA, I made it. Um, my bag didn't. <laughs> I'd had too short a transit in Singapore, just one hour, uh, so the bag didn't make it, but... Um, yeah, I got it later that afternoon. It was all fine. And to be honest, I was happy because the wheel was completely busted and it was a pain to drag around anyway. So at least somebody else got to drag it around and not me. <laughs> you've been in the air a lot recently after not doing hardly anything for, for two years. Um, you, you've now been doing like a tour of Europe and, and you're going back to Japan again, Singapore next yeah. week. Yeah. How's, yeah. The, how's the jet lag? Um, well, it hasn't quite kicked in yet, I think. It's been about, mm, I've been home for what, about 36 36 hours now um I think tonight tonight's going to be the killer it's always the second night isn't it that gets you but uh let's see next week I won't know if I'm coming or going or where I am I don't think by the time I hit Singapore <laughs> well, yeah absolutely it's gonna be a busy week for both of us so let's have a look at where we are currently Hannah we're um quite quite a lot of news stories at the moment a lot of sort of destinations trying desperately to to show how well they're doing where should we start i think the best story of the week so far is that changi international airport in singapore has reopened its fourth terminal so the airport is fully operational again two of its terminals two and four were suspended a long way back now back in may 2020 at the height of the pandemic panic around the region but now it's 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 back up and open and you actually flew through changi this week yeah, I did. And I flew out of the newly opened Terminal 2 as well. So that's quite timely. Um, all looked very new, new carpets. They didn't feel as busy, you know, as I, as I have 
previously been in there kind of pre-pandemic. But it didn't feel like a ghost town either. You know, it was definitely moving. There were people there. There was traffic, lots of flights flying out. Security lines were pretty long. So you do get that feeling things things are opening up and things are moving. And although it's only at, I can't quite remember the, the pre-pandemic levels right now, is it 60 something percent perhaps or 70 percent thing now? It's getting there. It's on its way for sure. And so it reopened, T- T2 opened, I think on Tuesday, you flew through on Thursday. They've been making quite a lot on the news, quite a lot of capital about everything is automated and, you know, touch free. Did, did you notice that? Oh, good question. Not really. (laughs) Not not really. I mean, I didn't have to clear immigration. So maybe immigration is probably one of the big touch-free points. And again, I didn't have to check in any luggage either because I was transiting. But security felt very hands-on. I guess there's no way of avoiding that, you know, having to physically put all your belongings in the in the tray and send it through and and walk through. But no, interestingly, it, it didn't feel super low touch actually. Right. So with four terminals back open, that restores the capacity of the airport to around about 70 million uh, per annum. That was exactly what it was uh, in 2019. Terminal 2 itself can handle around about 23 million per year. Uh, It's currently still renovating the northern part of the airport, um, which I think reopens in 2024. At that point, that will extend the capacity from 23 million to 28 million per year. And then, of course, on top of that, but a long way ahead into the mid-30s, Terminal 5 will itself alone um, be able to handle up to 50 million people. So, yeah, a a bright future is is expected in Singapore aviation. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, when I was going around Changi Airport, even things like the shops were all open. And I'm contrasting that now to some of the other airports that I've I've transited through recently, you know, KLIA. A lot of the the airport shops are closed. The restaurants are closed. Tokyo, Haneda, Narita exactly the same everything was very much closed um but changi yeah the shops were back open restaurants were back open and um, that's probably also a a bellwether of how things are and and the confidence that the tenants have as well that the traffic's going to keep on increasing yeah i would agree with that so let's move on to our second story um, of the week and this is quite an interesting one hannah this is asean the association of southeast asian nations has just published a road trip travel guide for travelers, which is pretty fascinating. This is something we've been talking about for two years. Um, the fact that domestic uh, road trips have become you know, very, very popular uh, during the lockdowns. And we did wonder how this was going to get put together across the region because it's mostly uh, been looked at on a country by country basis. Tourism boards have really, I would say, ignored self-drive travel up until the pandemic but it is now bigger news isn't it yeah absolutely and like you said this is something we've been talking about for ages i think this has been in our wish list actually around around drive tourism and that increasing and certainly when you look at arrival numbers across the region it's only when really they open to their neighboring countries and that's when their arrivals really took off so this it, it completely makes sense um just i suppose the question is asean as a kind of a concept as a promotional entity doesn't tend to have that much sway doesn't tend to have that much influence over travelers um so they've created this this guidebook which is great but how do you get that then in front of southeast asian travelers 
that's true. It's only available at the moment as a, as a download, but it's, it's actually pretty interesting. I've read through it in a sort of nerdy way, and it, it, it's pretty comprehensive. It goes through all the things that you need to know if you're going to drive in any of the countries or across borders. So it looks at things like vehicle permits, visa requirements, border entry crossings, even things like speed limits, toll details, any electric pricing uh, on the roads in the, in the different countries, and also emergency details as well. So it covers pretty much all those areas. It also has a section that recommends driving routes, both within countries and across borders. So you know, if you're crossing a country like Thailand to Cambodia or, or Thailand to Myanmar, for example, it's got driving suggestions there. Also uh, a section... <laughs> which is quite interesting if you, if you live in Malaysia on road safety trips for motorcyclists, which uh, has this big diagram saying never beat the red light. Well, if you live in Malaysia, uh, motorcyclists take great pleasure in riding through <laughs> red lights. And there's a couple of good nuggets in there as well. So, for example, I didn't know this, or I did know this, but I completely forgotten, Hannah. There are 10 countries in Southeast Asia. Five of them drive on the left. Five of them drive on the right. Mm, that's interesting. I had forgotten that too. Well, what's next, Gary? I mean, um, you know, every time you get to the first couple of weeks of the month, we always get the inevitable announcements, don't we, about um, number of arrivals have increased from the previous months. Um, and this month has not disappointed. In fact, we've seen thousand percent increases. So a couple of my favorites, um, Cambodia's Angkor Archaeological Park recorded a plus 2,075 percent increase in uh, arrivals in September. And Indonesia's international arrivals from January to August are up 2,028%. But of course, you know, with, with these thousand percentage increases, you always have to remember, this is coming off an incredibly low base from last year. There was essentially no international travel last year. Therefore, when you compare the two still in September, it, it essentially means very little, doesn't it? Yeah, that's really true. I, I think we, we went through this um, with the GDP figures when, when government started comparing year on year, but now they're starting to compare quarter to quarter. And obviously, that's, that's much different. I guess now that we'll have more data, you would hope that governments will start looking a little bit on quarter to quarter basis, because as you say, these are relatively meaningless when last year there was virtually no travel. I've got another one to actually add to, add to that list. And this one's a little bit behind because Malaysia doesn't tend to report its figures quite as quickly as everybody else. But from January to June this year, so the first half of the year, visitor arrivals to Malaysia were up 4,112.7%. And again, I don't know how you measure this. Tourism spending year on year was up 7,647%. Oh, great stats. I do love a good thousand percentage increase. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll have to enjoy them while we can because we won't be seeing them for much longer. No, exactly. Um, so talking about international arrivals, and of course we have to talk about Thailand because who else do we talk about when we're talking about visitor arrivals? But do you know what? For the whole of this year, you know, we have been holding up the TAT, Tourism Authority of Thailand, and their 10 million international visitor arrivals target and going, is this really realistic? Is it? Is it 10 million? 10 million? But do you know what, Gary? I think I'm starting to change my tune now, actually. So they released stats and they said from the 1st of January till September, they've actually had 6.01 million. And I think the last month of that, it actually saw a million arrivals. So you know what? I'm sat here thinking, actually, three months. I think they might do it. I think they might actually hit 10 million. What do you think? 
Yes, it's possible. That means they've got to make what four million in three months, and it is it is peak season. I guess a lot of that will depend on the the strength of of demand for travel from from Europe, I guess, um, as well as from within the region. There was a there was a lovely quote I saw in in the Bangkok Post about this, and it said, "From the first of January to the first of September, the country welcomed six point zero one million visitors, a figure slightly higher than the Tourism Authority of Thailand's goal of six million." So it is slightly higher, 0.1 million higher. It's kind of pointing out the obvious for no apparent reason. <laughs> yes. And also just another target. I think it's always a little bit unclear. Do they mean that was the yearly target? Is that the, the target that what it, sh- it should hit by that time? With Thailand, of course, we know there are always so many targets. But yeah, you know, like you said, it's it's not even the peak season yet. We're kind of moving into that now, October, November, December. They might just do it. But I wanted to raise a kind of cautionary story, which is Vietnam. So Vietnam in September actually announced that their monthly arrivals decreased month on month by 11%. To me, I found that really, really interesting. You you look at across all of the different countries in Southeast Asia, and mostly um, we, have, we are seeing these month on month continued increases, continued increases, continued increases. Now, with Vietnam, they always announce the month as soon as it's finished. There's never this one month lag like we see from other countries. And so the question now with this, you know, is, is Vietnam now this cautionary tale? Should other countries also expect a slowdown, right? Because they're one month ahead of reporting. Or is it down to, you know, perhaps not as effective international promotion? And that's why it's decreasing. What's your take? Possibly that. It's been rainy season as well, hasn't it? They haven't had great weather there, which I, I would guess perhaps has um, made of anybody's thinking of a, a short-term decision traveling in the regions after the school holidays as well. Difficult to read too much into it. But yeah, it, it, you're right. It, it is interesting that, you know, I think what Singapore has been saying was eight, eight straight months now it's had an increase in arrivals month on month. So that one drop does, does, raise, does raise an alarm, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I just think at the moment it's really difficult to actually form too many patterns about travel until we've got you know, a solid six to eight, 12 months data. It, it could be a blip or it could be a sign that, the, that Vietnam, which, let's be fair, hasn't actually attracted maybe the numbers of arrivals that it was hoping to this year. Difficult to say, I'd say. And going back to your point about whether Thailand will hit 10 million, that's an interesting one because... At the, at the start of uh, this whole process, Malaysia, you remember, was, was, was low-balling. It was saying it would have two, four, and then six. And, and now it's saying it could have around nine million per year. I mean, most of those will be coming from Singapore. But, you know, there's always been this competition between Thailand and Malaysia about who has the most visitors in the region. Thailand has taken that crown uh, recently or did before the pandemic. But it would, it would be really loath to lose out to, to Malaysia this year, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. That, w- that would be uh, yeah, a real... Um... Real kick in the teeth. Um, but it's, you know, again, you know, if we're going back to international arrivals, and particularly with Malaysia and outbound travel, right now Malaysians are the top source market to Thailand. So I think it's something like 900,000 of the 6 million are from Malaysia. So it's, it's really quite a chunk. And of course, you then have your Malaysian domestic tour operators um, complaining about well, now, now they're able to travel to Thailand and a lot of them, of course, uh, travel to southern Thailand just across the border um, and that they're, they're losing out on spend there. So we're just seeing all of these kind of interesting patterns now, you know, even international outbound impacting on domestic travel as well. And like you say, Gary, there's, 
it's really hard to get a feeling for for those patterns and are these long-term trends are these short-term trends is this just a reaction to borders reopening yeah i think that's a really good point and i think you know and you mentioned there that the next few months peak season for thailand but remember you know competition is getting quite fierce japan has just opened so uh, that will draw i would think quite a bit of uh, potential traffic away from this region um, and from this region you'll see a lot of malaysians i would imagine singaporeans going into into japan which will take them away from thailand so yeah, it's, it's going to get very, very competitive. I think it was Tourism Australia said this last week that it is now facing uh, the most competitive tourism landscape it's ever seen. And I guess that's, you know, that's going to endure for, for the foreseeable future, at least. Oh, I hadn't seen that quote. But yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the, the destinations that I um, represent in a way is, is Switzerland. I have an attraction there. And Japan reopening is a massive competition to, to Switzerland. You know, it's the same more expensive kind of location from Southeast Asia, you're talking medium to long haul. But you don't you wouldn't necessarily, you know, line them up and think that they're competitors, right? You think maybe a competitor to Switzerland might be France or something. But actually, you know, one country opening on the other side of the world can really impact your own numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's gonna be two ways as well, isn't it? You would imagine that Thais will want to be traveling to Japan and to Taiwan, perhaps, Korea as well. But in the, in the reverse, the Tourism Authority of Thailand will be trying to attract Japanese travelers, Korean travelers, Taiwanese travelers over the next few months. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of bartering. There's, it's going to get quite competitive. And I think the news stories are going to get much more interesting now that there is this two-way travel between Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia. Definitely. So should we move on to the next news story then? Yeah, the next news story is about domestic travel, which you alluded to a minute ago, Hannah. Um, and Indonesia's, well, I mean, it's massive numbers. It's a massive country. It's a huge population. The biggest country in Southeast Asia, the biggest population. And the numbers are, are, are panning out, aren't they? Pretty impressive. Yeah, exactly. So um, they've now announced that Indonesia has seen over 650 million domestic trips, which is just an enormous number. I mean, Gary, you know, like you said, that the population is huge, um, almost 300 million. But this is a pretty impressive number really i think it really you know supports the fact that indonesia has been saying throughout the pandemic look we want to focus on the domestic market we've got a huge domestic market let's focus on that and that's what they in theory have been doing um and it also seems to be paying off you know they they're looking at how do we develop the destinations for the domestic market rather than solely for the international markets. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it makes absolute sense. And they are walking the talk. They're doing what they said they would do. There was one thing I thought that was quite curious about it. There was a quote in one of the Indonesian uh, media publications this week said that the, the domestic market movement is now, as you said, Hannah, 650 million trips, which is way above the yearly target of 150 million. I'm curious why they lowballed on on their full year target because 150 million seems quite low. Yeah, you know, I actually suspect that that might be an error in the media. That's what I, I I've seen this number reported different places and different amounts. So I would be really surprised if the original target was actually 150 million. <laughs> but I was trying to go through and and find out, you know, what, what were they saying about this last year? What were they saying the domestic target? And I just didn't quite have time to. To, to narrow it down but if it really was 150 million like you say that that, that is really low-balling it yeah I, I think I don't think it was I think we we mentioned this a few months ago and I think it was I think it was 350 but but I may be wrong yeah I think it's something like that I think so but even if it's 350 the fact that they're now at 650 is is pretty good so whatever their target was they've kind of smashed it 
that's impressive when you also consider that they have had some restrictions in terms of domestic travel. So there have been criteria like you've had to have a booster or you've had to have testing if you haven't had a booster. So they have had all of that also come to play this year, whereas a lot of other countries have completely removed um, domestic travel restrictions. Indonesia has still had some and they've still achieved those kind of numbers. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. So staying with Indonesia and also with Thailand, we've got two big events in the region coming up next month uh, in Indonesia, the G20 summit and in Thailand, the APEC leaders summit. And there's some media discussion now about how that will actually impact people's lives before and during those events. Yeah, exactly. So Thailand has the APEC um, and they have already approved um, three additional public holidays uh, for residents in Bangkok, Nontaburi and Samut Prakan. And the reasoning behind this is just to reduce traffic congestion, (laughs) basically make sure all, all of those motorcades carrying these world leaders can get to where they need to go. Um, in Bangkok in November, which I, th- I thought is, is is kind of an interesting move, isn't it? It is, but I think it's par for the course. I mean, ha- having lived in China when they've had major events, they've got the the party congress is happening this week in, in Beijing. You know, the streets are always cleared. Nobody wants to see traffic jams. Nobody wants to see people. They just want a direct route to, to the venues that they're going to. So I'm not entirely surprised by it. But the, I guess the, the issue with Thailand and Bali is hosting these events and making such a big play of it. It does look good on the, on the media that you have these clear roads and these clear streets. But if you actually have destinations devoid of people, it does look very, very sterilized. Yeah, that's true. I mean, so for, for Bali, the G20, um, I don't think it has been officially announced yet, but certainly the, the Bali vice governor was gunning for, you know, re-implementing work from home and online schooling even um, during the G20 summit duration. Again, that, that same concept, but... I mean, you're, you're right, you know, tra- travel is people. <laughs> and if the people are removed from that, um, it must make for a, a quite a funny feeling. Yeah, no, nothing yet about any restrictions on airports. Airports often tend to get closed down or, or mm. airspaces get closed or flights get, you know, cancelled for certain periods. So I guess that's something else we'll have to watch out for. They probably won't announce that too far in advance, but, you know, that's something that, that is likely to happen. Absolutely. Next pick, this is from you, wasn't it, Gary? And uh, this, this is not a Southeast Asian story, but... As always, it impacts on Southeast Asia. Yep. So Taiwan is is open now to tour groups. And although it's not actually, a, a, it's in Northeast Asia, it's not Southeast Asian story. The first day of, of arrivals, which was on the 11th this week on Tuesday, there were 20 package tour groups came from six different countries. Uh, and four of those were from Southeast Asia, from Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, mm. and five groups from Thailand on the very first day. Plus, as you would expect, tour groups from Japan and South Korea. So I think... You know, it's quite clear that where the demand is for Taiwan travel is from Southeast Asia and from the two neighboring countries of Japan and South Korea. I guess that's a pattern that we'll start to see over coming months. But, you know, that's that's quite an impressive first day. I think it was something like 12,000 inbound passengers, about 6,000 outbound passengers on the first day and and 6,000 transit passengers. So although those numbers seem very, very low. Uh, in Taipei compared to what they would have been two years ago. It is a start. And you know, I think Taiwan is, is hoping that it will ramp up quite quickly in terms of its, uh, its group tour packages. Yeah, well, it, it's looking good. Very interesting that so many of those groups, like you said, were from Southeast Asia. And also, you know, the, there is that, as, as we've seen when other countries have opened, you know, that initial rush, people want to get back. They may have relatives there or they may just literally want to, want to have traveled there um, for two years. But, you know, will that die down? Will it moderate over time? I guess we'll have to see. But I, I mean, we, we've been saying for a while, I think Taiwan would be mm. uh, a desirable country to visit to. It's safe. Uh, it's beautiful. 
and there's every reason to go there. And I think the fact that it's been off limits for, for two and a half years adds to its appeal. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're, if you're looking in terms of flight times from Southeast Asia, it's really not that far either. It's not that far. It's quite an affordable destination. And the tourism board, Taiwan Tourism Board, has been very strong, has continued promoting um, throughout Southeast Asia, despite it being um, closed. You know, at, at Mata Fair, the Malaysian Travel Consumer Fair in September, I think it was one of the biggest um, destination booths. And they had not only Taiwan, but even Taipei had its own booth as well. So certainly it's top of mind, I think, as a destination for people. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. So that's our roundup from the region for this week, Hannah. Just now quickly to look forward to next week, because we'll both be down in Singapore, some big travel industry events happening down there. I'm going on Sunday. You're going on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, what should we be looking forward to? Well, yeah. Well, why don't you, you tell us what, what's your event, Gary? So first off, I'm uh, speaking at the International Media Marketplace, which is run by Trav Media. Uh, it's an event they host around the world in, in the Americas, in Australia and in Europe, uh, the Asia event. Obviously, like most events, it's the first time it's happened in person since 2019. Um, so I'll be speaking about on Monday. That's a two-day event. And then that segues straight into... ITB Asia, which is the region's biggest travel and tourism industry event, isn't it, Hannah? And that runs Wednesday through Friday next week. It does. So, um, yeah, I mean, ITB Asia is going to be very interesting to see what destinations are coming with big booths. Um, Saudi Arabia is the, the, the destination, the main destination sponsor this year. And we've certainly seen Saudi Arabia trying to go big, trying to attract travelers, particularly from Southeast Asia, beyond the, the kind of Umrah, Hajj, pilgrimage traditionally what they've been known for so that will be interesting to see who's there and um, obviously hopefully lots and lots of familiar faces too and you've got a busy time as well you're, you're doing a few events I think down there yeah so I've got a an adventure travel trade association ATTA session all about adventure travel on the Friday morning which is going to be good fun um, and moderating another panel all about um, how tour operators and activity marketplaces have adapted as well. So that should be good on Thursday. And uh, I've got the World Islamic Tourism Conference on Monday, Tuesday in Kuala Lumpur as well. So <laughs> it really is all go. We'll have plenty to report back about in two weeks' time. We won't be, we won't be doing a pod next week because we'll both be busy, but we'll be back in two weeks and we'll tell you who we spoke to, what we found out uh, and what the outlook is um, from the industry for the next few months uh, because it is a gathering of, of everybody who is going to be talking about where we're going in 2023. Absolutely. And listeners, if you happen to be there, look us up. Come find us. We'd love to say hi. So that brings us to an end of this week's show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or any big story we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep, as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And that's a wrap for today. We'll be back in two weeks' time on the other side of ITB Asia to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. Talk to you then.